right. Well, let's get started. Thank you to those who are joining us on Facebook Live, and thanks to those who are joining us over Zoom. My name's Ian Bushfield. I'm the Executive Director of the BC Humanist Association. Our Research Coordinator, Teal Phelps Bondaroff, is just off doing the 7 p.m. cheer, as is a good duty for anyone who supports all the frontline workers, which I hope is all of us. Today we're here to talk about a bit of the work, a bit of, a bit of the behind-the-scenes work we do at the BC Humanist Association, and I want to dig into how charities work in this country, how religion is treated in, under charity law, and a bit about freedom of expression. Teal's done a bit of reading as well about a case that uh, came down in December where a church of atheism tried to get charitable status and was rejected, and he'll dig into that and what that means for charities in this country. Uh, those who are on joining us on Zoom, you're welcome to either throw questions in the Zoom chat, and I'll try and get them, get to them right away, or we'll take questions at the end. I'm also watching the Facebook Live comments, and if you're watching on Facebook Live, feel free to throw a comment in there, share the video, tell others about us. Uh, before we begin, as always, I will acknowledge that I'm working here on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. I'm sure we have people across the province across the country working in different territories. We should pay attention to where we are and thank those who are able to help. So today, charity law. Uh, there's a lot to go on here. The quote I want to start with comes from the major 1891 case that I'm going to talk about a lot, which is, if a gentleman of education without legal training were asked, what is the meaning of a trust for charitable purposes? I think you would most probably reply, that sounds like a legal phrase. You would better ask a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Um, I have read a significant number of these cases and tried to do my best to understand it. I've taken a nonprofit law and governance class, uh, and I do try to stay abreast of this, but you know, nothing in here is legal advice. Charity law is very complicated in Canada primarily because it's not written down. So if you want to form a charity in Canada, you have to apply to the Canada Revenue Agency for an exemption under the Income Tax Act. The Income Tax Act defines a charity as something whose purposes are exclusively charitable and who devotes its resources predominantly to charitable activities or its other activities like fundraising should be incidental. It doesn't define what charitable purposes and charitable activities are. It leaves that to the courts and to history, which makes it a little t tough to really determine what is a charity in this country. So where does our court definition of charities come from? Well, it turns out it actually goes back to 1601 in England at the, with the Statute of Elizabeth, the Charitable Purposes Act. Uh, organizations were trying to form then and claim to be charitable in some sense to do good and that act included a long preamble that named things like repair of bridges, ports, havens, causeways, churches, sea banks, uh, supporting aid, relief of the aged, impotent, and poor people, maintenance of sick and maimed soldiers. These were the kind of things that it viewed as charitable. Uh, that was repealed in 1888, but that preamble text was kept, give, keeping the main kind of core of what a charity was. England and Wales actually dispensed with that definition of a charity in 1960 
when they adopt the modern Charities Act. So everything I'm saying here, even though Canada relies on this old English law, doesn't apply in England anymore. They've moved on. All Commonwealth countries have actually moved on from this 17th century, early 17th century law. So that preamble was the law until about 1891, and there was kind of a slow shift over time. In the uh, Napoleonic War eras of 1798, England was running low on money, and as they do when they need to fund wars, they decided to set up additional taxes. And so the Assessed Taxes Act of 1798 was brought about at that time to introduce income taxes, and these income taxes would be how they would pay for the war. Now, they did create this as a temporary measure, and when they expanded it in 1799, they provided that corporations, fraternities, or societies of persons established for charitable purposes were exempt from these taxes. So this was the first time charities were exempt from taxes. Prior to then, there weren't taxes on them, there weren't income taxes, but they brought in income taxes, and they said, well, things that are charitable should be exempt. But from that point, they hadn't defined what a charity was. They just kind of relied on the 1601 Act. In 1803, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the British Treasurer in government, decided to change, tweak how they took the taxes. He moved to a deduction at the source, and so charities had to pay the tax, but then apply for a refund. So the money was out of their hands and they had to ask for it back. And this meant there were an increasing number of applications, and by 1805, bureaucrats were appointed to deal with all of these claims. These income taxes were repealed in 1816 and reintroduced in 1842 as a temporary measure, and income taxes still failed to define what a charitable purpose was. They're still relying on the 1601 law. The Treasury of England in 1865 really called for the legislature to deal with this and write down what a charities was and it took England another hundred years to do it and Canada still has not. In 1888 another peer of the House of Lords called for a legislative definition of charity, something they're still doing in Canada, and this is around the time when Pempsil and his fellow Moravian, which is a Protestant church, decided that they wanted charitable status and that they deserved the 73 pounds they had paid in taxes for the 1886 tax year. They wanted that back. I don't actually know what 73 pounds works out from in 1886 dollars to today. I'm sure it was significant. And they went through a number of cases. So they started at the lower courts and went all the way to the House of Lords because at the time that was the highest judicial bottle body. It would be like having our Senate uh, act as our Supreme Court, which can have all kinds of problems. But in this case, the House of Lords ultimately decided to give the Moravians their tax exemption and their charitable status. This was after a lot of tension within the House of Lords, I read. Uh, I'm taking most of this history from the Pencil Foundation's website, which is actually very good on this subject. And I can throw a link if anyone's ever interested in reading more about this. But in this ultimate decision, it kind of came down to what is a charity. And Lord McNaughton, who wrote the uh, 
decision in the end wrote that charity in its legal sense comprises four principal divisions, uh, the relief of poverty, the advancement of education, the advancement of religion, and other purposes beneficial to the community not falling under the preceding heads. So they defined four categories, one of which is a catch-all. Uh, education, religion, poverty, and others. And he did add that the others isn't meant to be less than. He says the last trust refers to are not less charitable in the eyes of the law because incidentally they benefit the rich as well as the poor. Indeed, every charity that deserves the name must do either directly or indirectly. In other words, he's saying these other charities are still good charities. It's not that they're lesser because they're the other ones. All of these things can be charitable. And so those other benefits to the community are generally defined by courts over time in Canada. And that includes like protecting the environment, uh, building hospitals, and so forth. Promoting human rights, some of the work the BC Humanist Association does. And this is where the case where that quote I led off with about tax law being complicated and you should ask a lawyer comes from. Because even then he was like, this is the best we can do. And so since that case in 1891 was decided, Canada has stuck with this pencil definition of religion. The CRA has built more and more guidelines to figure out what it means. And courts, our courts have expanded a little and poked around the edges. There have been a couple significant cases trying to test how much is religion or how much is charitable. One of the biggest questions in Canada has been, are minor league sports charitable? And our courts ultimately came down saying, no, uh, starting an amateur athletics association is not a charitable purpose. And if you go through the Income Tax Act, they're now an entirely separate category for you know, amateur sports, which I think most of us would think encouraging kids to get active seems like a public good, a good thing that we would want to encourage. But the courts looked at the law of 1601 and went, well, they didn't like sports at the time, so we don't have them as our charitable thing. So because of this antiquated definition, we have another, and the fact we rely on the Income Tax Act so much, there's a number of other kind of knock-on effects. And before I get more into religion and turn it over to Teal, the one that came up a lot for us and for other organizations especially was this question around freedom of expression. So before December 2018, uh, charities had to ensure that substantially all of their activities were not spent on quote-unquote political activities. I mentioned that charities have to do charitable activities, and those are largely the things relating to your purpose. So if you are a school, your charitable activity might be teaching class. If you're a hospital, it's treating the sick. Kind of obvious things. For some charities, though, that gets more complicated. For an environmental charity, challenging laws about or calling for laws that reduce pollution seems like an effective way to promote a healthier environment. But that was considered a political activity and charities had to limit the amount they could do to it. They didn't have a total ban on it. They had to have substantially none of their work on this, which the CRA meant said meant 10% of your resources and time, a volunteer time included. And all of this had to be nonpartisan. So you could support the change in policy, a change in law, a change in regulation, but not a change in political party. You can't support elections. And that seems 
like what I think most people would recognize as fair. So this, you can do lobbying advocacy. Now the CRA rules got increasingly complex over time. Um, and I'll get in when I talk about the court case that struck it down, how absurd these seem to be. But for just an example, if you submitted, if our charity submitted a brief to a parliamentary committee, that was not counted as political activity. But if we emailed those parliamentarians outside of their committee activities, it would be political activities, even if we sent them the same thing. Uh, in some cases, meetings to s decide whether to launch a petition, even if you didn't launch the petition, might be considered political activities. So charities lived under a bit of fear, because if you were found to be violating these, these rules, you could lose your charitable status, and that's kind of a death knell for a charity. Uh, things got uh, serious in the 2014 era when the Harper government famously launched a series of political activities audits. I think the National Minister of National Revenue at the time was John Joe Oliver, and he had said a number of things, kind of a, not quite conspiratorial, but getting there where the assumption was that environmental NGOs were taking a bunch of U.S. money to combat Alberta oil, which has been overinflated to debunked a number of times. Uh, these do matter not just because of the chilling effect that they had on the work of many charities, but if you look at the Income Tax Act in its whole, corporations are actually able to write off the lobbying expenses they do. So there's just a fundamental injustice where a for-profit corporation can write off the expenses it spends lobbying the government and a charity can't even talk to the government without fear of losing its status. That said, as these audits went on, it seemed like almost no one was getting their status stripped. Charities were being found in the clear, although often uh, following significant uh, bureaucratic headaches. I know I spoke to one uh, executive director for a, a legal charity, and she talked about because it's a legal charity, they documented everything by the 15-minute mark. So that was just like more ammunition for the CRA auditors to go, all right, well, does this count as political or is this not? And they were lawyers, so they felt pretty good that they understood the regulations. But even in those meetings and those audits, the CRA was switching what seemed to be in what category, and it just left a lot of confusion and fear and stress unnecessarily on people who are just trying to make the world less bad. Nevertheless, several groups did lose their charitable status. Most uh, prominently for us and our supporters was Dying with Dignity Canada. Uh, they lost their status because the, the CRA, while auditing them for political activities, decided they should never have been charitable in the first place because they wanted to support a change in the law or assisted dying when assisted dying wasn't legal. And so they should have just been an advocacy organization purely and then later become a charity to support people. They are a charity now, again, now that assisted dying is le legal. Um, once 2015 happened and the election there where all the opposition parties, I believe, had called for an end to these audits, uh, Trudeau and the federal liberals won and they promised to end these audits. They were put on hold, but ones that new audits were put on hold initially and ones that were ongoing, they said, well, we'll finish those. And then I think eventually they were also paused, uh, but nothing else was really done for a while. The CRA launched a consultation in late 2016. The BC Human Association added our voice in writing 
the submissions still on our website and we went to see them in person and spoke at one of their uh, round tables to try to belabor this point that freedom of expression matters as well as some of the other stuff we'll get to later about the definition of charities and religion. Uh, but in May, when they released their report, the CRA did recommending repealing this political activities restriction. Uh, July 2018, a full year came by and there'd still been no federal action and charities were getting really frustrated. And finally, the Ontario Superior Court struck down the restrictions on political activities as infringing the free speech. Uh, the charity Canada Without Poverty had gone to court because their charity status had actually been repeat, revoked because the CRA found that they were spending uh, almost 100% on, of their activities on political activities because Canada Without Poverty's belief was that to solve poverty, it needs changes in government policy and not just handing out sandwiches and soups to help people. Part, previous court rulings have actually said that relief, and I think this came up for Oxfam Canada, relief of poverty means you can't eliminate poverty. And so your goal can't be as a charity to just get rid of poverty. It has to just be to make it less bad, which was just asinine. So Justice Morgan in his decision writes things like, simply put, there's no way that Canada without poverty can pursue its charitable purpose using methodology that is recognized by Parliament itself while restricting political activities to 10% of its resources. Um, he says it's an understatement to say there's no widely agreed upon definition of what is political. It's difficult to say what, if anything, political signifies in its various applications and how it signifies what it does. He says there's no definition of political activities in the Income Tax Act, the definition section specifically applicable to charities. Um, he says this raises both a practical and philosophical question. In an era when the personal has been long considered political, can one coherently distinguish between political activities and charitable activities, or for that many matter, any other kinds of activities? Uh, and he goes into the 10% rule specifically. He says, the audits impugn the applicants, Canada Without Poverty's internal communications. It suggests that even an organization's contemplation of political activities consumes resources in a way that places the applicant offside of the rule and the limits. So it perhaps poses perhaps the most profound dilemma of all. In order to not overrun the 10% rule imposed by the policy, the applicant is compelled to contemplate what is and what is not a political activity. But of course, there's inherent circularity to, in that exercise. One need not be an expert in political theory to understand that the definition of politics itself is a political act. The applicant may be consuming part of the allotted 10% of its resources by determining whether it is permissible to consume those resources. So basically, Justice Morgan got it. He looked at these rules and went, this is absurd. Um, he threw out the activities, um, restrictions, whole, you know, tooth and hole, and called on Parliament to change it, or it would just not be applicable. Parliament initially, and the federal government initially, said they might appeal this, but also, you know, they would implement legislation and that was in summer of 2018 by in september they released a draft bill on their website which kind of half-assed it they, like it did a bunch of weird things but didn't really repeal the restrictions and made a bunch of other changes when they finally brought their budget implementation act in october 2018 it was better and did do a full repeal 
and that passed in December 2018, finally. And now, instead of political activities, there's a section on public policy dialogue and development activities, and the Income Tax Act is clear that charities can do those things as long as they're furthering your charitable purpose. So the BC Humanist Association cannot lobby about things that have nothing to do with our purposes of advancing education about humanism and human rights. You know, we have nothing to say about what the tax rate should be. But we have a lot to say on issues of secularism. And so we are free to pursue public policy dialogue and development activities on those elements. Nevertheless, the CRA has a box, essentially a way of thinking about political activities, and even on the forms charities submit, they have just crossed out political activities and wrote public policy dialogue and development activities and said, write what you would have written in the old form in this new form, even though there's no limit on it, I guess, and there's no reason for the CRA to collect this data and information. So there's still arguably somewhat of a chilling effect there. And, I, you know, personally, as someone who works for a very small nonprofit, not the people I meet who work for other similar sized nonprofits don't always have a lot of expertise in this area and don't necessarily realize that these rules apply to them and that if they did email their MP, they might have to report that. So this, you know, this kind of thing comes up frequently. Even BC has just changed its lobbyist act where if your organization has a paid staff member that communicates with a government official, you need to report that, no matter what size you are. With There's like a small exception for charities, but for small charities who do very little, but otherwise almost every organization needs to report and do monthly reports. So these are, you know, it's kind of the flip side of transparency. Transparency can be good, but can also put a lot of bureaucratic burden on small organizations. But that gets us through the political activities. I think just one of the other things that was in there in the CRA's regulations when they discussed political activities is they talked about how you couldn't indirectly um, talk about issues. And so they had regulations around social media that actually meant posting links that um, could indirectly support a political party was prohibited. And so what this effectively meant in the end was as the BC Humanist Association, we couldn't post a link to a blog or a news article that might be too pro or anti of the, any of the parties. And we had to make sure that the comments on our articles, on our Facebook, on our Twitter somehow, also were nonpartisan. So we have a policy, and this is still in place, where we can't have partisan comments on our social media, even though that's not the association's view. And I think most people can recognize that comments on a social media page do not reflect the association within some reason. But these still exist, and these still persist. Whereas, you know, many organizations don't have similar, any nonprofit or for-profit organization that's not charitable, doesn't have similar restrictions. So there's still challenges around that, but we definitely have a much better law that's still being shaken out. But coming back to the definition of charity, I talked about the four heads of charities, the poverty, education, religion, and other. And obviously the most interesting for the humanists and seculars out there 
is what is the advancement of religion mean? Uh, for the CRA, they have looked at the case law in their view, and they say there has to be an element of theistic worship, which means the worship of a deity or deities in the spiritual sense. So you can't have an atheistic religion unless you're Buddhism, but they just kind of overlook that. Uh, they really want you to believe in a god and promote that. And the idea here is this is the government endorsing the promotion of theism over non-theism in contradiction, and Teal will get into this more, to a number of cases and the at the Supreme Court where most notably in the Saguenay decision, the government is compelled to not uh, endorse religion or non-religion over the other, you know, treat all neutrally. And as an effort to try to call for this to be fixed, we haven't taken a firm stance as to what the best fix is, but our guidance has been, or recommendations has been either that the advancement of religion could be just removed as a category. I mean, both methods we require or suggest do call for taking uh, charities, giving a defined, giving a definition of charity in tax law itself, rather than relying on decades, centuries old court cases. So remove advancement of religion in that new definition or broaden it. And there is precedence for this. So in England and Wales, I mentioned in 1960, they adopted a Charities Act and the Humanist Association there, formerly the British Humanist Association, now Humanist UK, lobbied for years for a more equitable and just and less discriminatory definition of charities. And finally, in 2011, the Charities Act was amended to broaden religion to include a subclause that said religion includes a religion which involves belief in more than one god and a religion which does not involve a belief in a god, as well as religions that involve belief in exactly one god. So as many numbers of gods, including zero, can be a religion. And that means that Humanist UK can now be registered as a religion for the advancement of humanism, rather than trying to shoehorn themselves into another category as we have to some extent. Um, with that, I think I'll turn it over to Teal to talk about the Church of Atheism. Hey, yeah, thanks, Ian. Um, and I'll try to rehash what you were talking about. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us as well. Uh, yeah, so basically what I was going to do was talk about the Church of Atheism and then, uh, which is a Supreme Court, uh, or rather a Federal Court of Appeal case from November 2019. And as I go through the case, um, I was going to explore some of the issues that Ian was talking about um, and some of the other sort of um, adjacent cases that are relevant. So um, I post the link in the chat for folks who are here with us on Zoom, and uh, perhaps Ian could uh, share that on the Facebook page as well. Uh, so I'll go through the case sort of uh, part by part, uh, only because I think it's really interesting how this case was constructed. So when this came out in November, um, Ian and I had this interesting conversation, and there's a few things to add, building what Ian said. The first one is, um, you should ask a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. I'm a political scientist. Um, but I do look at the strategic use of international law at the international level, which is completely irrelevant to this case. Um, the other thing that came up was uh, definitely don't defend yourself in court. If you are going to the Federal Court of Appeals, it's always advised people to have an actual lawyer. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add, based on what Ian was talking about, was the idea of what is political. So I'm a political scientist, and um, if you ask a political scientist what is political, 
they will probably tell you basically everything. Because <laughs> um, if you use some of the, you know, politics is sort of discussions on how power is allocated. And if you look at definitions of power, it's basically everything as well. So yeah, you get this really complicated uh, philosophical conversations, which um, are great for a political science, like 201 intro class to explore. Um, but yeah, so basically, um, this is the Church of Atheism case um, comes out of central Canada or out of Ontario, um, and it's a federal appeal case. And the background basically is that the Church of Atheism um, attempted to register itself as a charity. They were a registered charity, but they wanted to get a CRA. Uh, they wanted to be recognized as a not-for-profit um, under the CRA. And to do this, they basically put a case around um, around the church and saying, okay, so we have this church and we have uh, the Ten Commandments of, of Energy, which is our sacred text. Um, we, we venerate energy and our doctrines are mainstream science. So in essence, what they were doing is they're taking sort of the current definitions of religion and attempting to construct a non-theistic religion, um, an atheistic religion, as it were, around that to meet those criteria, kind of like taking a checklist and putting it side by side. Um, this case wasn't decided in favor of the Church of Atheism, but as we go through it, I wanted to point out how it both highlights uh, flaws in the current regulations around taxes for charities in Canada, and also opens the door to some other aspects. Um, and, and as Ian was saying as well, this debate, uh, what's really interesting about this issue is, it is it's within a debate in the secular and humanist worlds as well, which is, are we trying to fight against religious privilege or are we fighting for the same privileges that are extended to religions to be extended to other groups? It's not necessarily mutually exclusive, but there's often sometimes tension within the movement, um, within secular communities, between things like, can you have a church of atheism? Does that make any sense? Um, and that kind of aspect. So it's kind of interesting um, where, you know, you're either, um, if you seek to be recognized as a religion or you seek to question religious privilege, there are two different approaches to addressing the issue of um states perhaps overstepping the bounds of separation of religion and government. So that being said, then, um, in essence, the um, in this case, the Church of Atheism was looking to you know, be registered as a charity, and I know it's, um, PEMSL immediately comes up, right? So the, the claimant basically says, hey, look, you're violating our rights under that are guaranteed under the Charter, rights 2A, 15, and 27. Uh, 2A is the, the freedom of thought, belief, opinion, etc. 15 is equality before the law, and 27 is um, is this more of a descriptive point about uh, preserving multicult the multicultural nature of Canada. And um, the court dealt with those sort of um, step by step. What's interesting in looking at the court's decision is it starts highlighting some of the flaws that Ian was talking about in the in the tax policy. So for example, um, it talks about like what what is charity? Well, it says it's something that does charitable activities. What are charitable activities? Ah, then we go to PEMSL and we say, look, that's relief of poverty, advancement of education, advancement of religion, and other benefits. Um, and what's interesting, too, is with exploring what counts as other benefits, um, the CRA has some regulations around basically defining what is a public benefit. And this is something we're actually looking at in our ongoing research on permissive tax exemptions um, and, and places of worship receiving uh, tax exemptions at the municipal level. But basically, if you look at some of the what the CRA says, they say that a public benefit is a generally tangible benefit. Beneficiaries must be the public at large or come from a sufficient segment of the public at large. Um, organizations may not otherwise benefit private individuals, and there's some limitations here, obviously paying staff and things like that. They cannot restrict the delivery of benefit to a certain group or classes of persons without adequate justification. That was interesting as well. 
and they cannot charge a fee for their services where the effect of the change would be to unduly exclude people. So you can explore these individually, right? So the idea is um, the benefit has to be tangible. And this does raise some questions about offering untangible benefits to people, um, which, I mean, those could qualify as, you know, uh, religious services. They could equally qualify for advocacy. You know, one of the things that I do as an academic is look at uh, political strategy of NGOs and advocacy groups. And it's often a huge challenge to measure their impact because, you know, you put out a, a press release and you get some news stories. It's quite often difficult to quantify the actual tangible impact of that, uh, that press release, for example. Uh, a couple other aspects, which I think are critical here, you know, the second point, beneficiaries must be the public at large. This um, is put in place to preclude private clubs. And there's been a lot of jurisprudence on this where uh, private summer camps out in the bush have applied for charitable status. And the court has found that uh, no, um, just because anyone could technically apply for your summer camp um, doesn't mean that your evangelical summer camp out in the bush qualifies as a, uh, as, a as being open to the public. Um, and the other one I, I think is crucial often um, that we often kind of skate over is the idea of you can't restrict certain groups from receiving a benefit. And this often comes up in the case of, um, of some uh, provision, providers of charity who might provide services to certain groups and discriminate overtly or covertly against other groups. Um, a couple other things in the CRA, they basically, it basically stipulates that, you know, um, reasons for disqualification or for not uh, that might prevent registration are such things as um, if the organization um, is established exclusively, exclusively to, uh, to make a profit, as well as if the organization is set up for illegal purposes or purposes contrary to public policy. And that's a bit of a hot potato because we can determine what's illegal, but what is contrary to public policy? And Ian was talking about groups that are challenging public policy. And is that contrary to it? Yes, it obviously is if you're challenging it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it goes against the public good. And there's huge amounts of tension there. And it's very poorly defined. And then also um, the political aspect, which, which Ian's talked about. So I'll kind of skate past that. So basically um, we have the Church of Atheism and they're basically claiming that they're, they're trying to advance atheism as a sort of religion, um, using the criteria of religion. And we can start looking at some of the judgments. So if you're following along at home, I'm, I'm on paragraph 10. And this raises the question, the judge raises the question of like, what is a religion? Well, they say, look, a religion is, you know, we recognize it. It says here, either the courts have recognized it as such in the past, or it must have the same fundamental characteristics as those recognized religions. And this is a huge problem because you're necessarily biased to existing religions. So newer religions have a higher burden, a higher barrier to overcome than, uh, than established, you know, for example, smaller sects of, of longstanding religions. And we see one of my favorite examples is um, the Neo-American Church. And this is coming from the United States, obviously. Um, but it's a court case where uh, it's U.S. versus Kutch, if you're interested in following along. And basically, the Neo-American Church establishes itself. And they say, look, we have a sacrament, LSD. We have a motto. It is victory over horse shit. We have a symbol, it is the three-eyed toad, and we have an official hymn, which is Puff the Magic Dragon or Row, Row, Row Your Boat, depending on which sect you belong to. And basically, they said, look, here are the criteria for a religion. We're going to fulfill those with slightly tongue-in-cheek, um, satirical things. And again, that, that does two things. One, it kind of highlights inherent bias, but it also, again, highlights the fact that the criteria for determining what is a religion are very much set in the ways of more established, more more commonly known religions. Um, Ian was mentioning Buddhism. One of the examples I like to go to is Ekankar, which is a sort of spiritualist sect that does a lot of uh, work with 
noise and sound. And, you know, it's, if you look at its criteria, they don't meet a lot of the criteria that um, air quotes conventional uh, religions might meet as well. And this is a huge problem, especially when, you know, the people who are applying the law are using a smell test. That's basically the, I know it when I see it. But unfortunately, they're using as a baseline um, their current existing knowledge of what is religion. And so you're using the inherent biases of people who you know, might see religion as Christianity or Islam, um, religions with books and gods and things like that. Um, and then they're applying those biases to their decision, which is hugely problematic. And so that's a bit of a problem when it comes to um, defining what is a god. The, the current regulations really do underscore the need for um, faith in a higher power, such as a god, entity, or a supreme being, um, that followers worship this power, and that the religion consists of a particular or comprehensive system of faith and worship. I mean, each of those points is a stumbling block. Uh, find a religion that has a comprehensive system of faith, right? Does, what is comprehensive, right? Um, similarly, you could believe in a god but not want to worship it, right? So there's a lot of tension within that definition and, and narrowing biases towards certain faith groups and not others. So a couple other aspects to add there. Um, when a group is trying to establish that they provide a public benefit, of the four categories in PEMSL, there is a tacit assumption that relief of poverty, advancement of education, and advancement of religion are beneficial. And it's the fourth category where the burden is often placed upon the charitable group to establish that they provide a benefit. This presumption of benefit is kind of problematic um, because, off, again, if we put that next to the definition of religion, we're necessarily favoring some religions over others and some belief systems over others. And um, basically saying, we presume that your belief system provides a benefit to the community, but your secular humanist group, your atheist church, or your Plato Appreciation Society doesn't provide the same benefit. And that is definitely problematic when we look at decisions like Saginaw. So that's kind of some of the aspects that come up in this case. And I wanted to walk through a couple of the other ones um, because it's kind of relevant to the conversation we're having. Basically, um, as far as the court decision goes, um, I won't go over some details because they're less less relevant. But one of the ones I want to cover was that a um, couple interesting points. So when the court said that the Church of Atheism would not receive its charitable tax status, it said something very interesting, which was that um, the appellant as a charitable organization does not interfere in, and sorry, the minister's refusal to register the appellant as a charitable organization does not interfere in a manner that is more than trivial or insubstantial with the appellant's membership's ability to practice their atheistic beliefs. In other words, um, this organization is able to do what it wants to do and to continue to practice, and its actions are not dependent upon charitable tax status. I think this is interesting because if you were to apply these same regulations to a place of worship, um, the same regulations, uh, the need to demonstrate a benefit following CRA regulations where the benefit is not presumed, um, you might actually find that they wouldn't meet the criteria. And in addition to that, that removing their charitable tax status, similar in this case, wouldn't actually uh, negatively impact their ability to do what they do. So that's an interesting aspect. Um, again, what Ian was saying, if you look at paragraph 20, that's another example of um, a bit of a challenge with the definitions. This is the decision where the judge says, look, actually recognize that the current definitions would exclude groups like Buddhists, um, Ekankar, and, and other non-theistic religions. And the judge literally says, I will leave open to another day whether the existence of an authoritative text such as a Bible is a necessary requirement as well. Uh, interesting uh, bias towards picking that religious book over others. Uh, but similarly, um, 
this is an open question. So this, this issue is alive in the courts. I think that's, that's kind of important. And this is an issue with the current laws lacking a clear definition of religion. And one of the things that Ian and I just explored in another paper that we wrote together at Arbiters of Faith, um, it may actually be impossible for the state to define religion, just given the sheer diversity of views and beliefs that are out there. And that in doing so, they might exclude groups and violate their duty of religious neutrality. And that's actually something that comes up in this court case as well. And this is something, this is the reason why I want to talk about this court case. So paragraph 26 says, the privilege of registration as a charity functions as an indirect tax subsidy to encourage the work of registered charities. So the judge is, to, and, uh, the judge is basically saying that the purpose of giving charitable tax status is to support the work of the recipient. Fair enough. But when we put that part of the decision next to Saguenay, we get a problem. So Saguenay, for those who, um, we've covered this in previous talks, but Saguenay is the decision uh, where basically uh, it was regarding municipal prayer. And the court decision basically established that the state has a duty of religious neutrality, that this is a democratic imperative, and that it must remain neutral in questions of religion. And I'll read a section, a summary of Saguenay. It says, the state's duty to protect every person's freedom of conscience and religion means that it may not use its powers in such a way as to promote the participation of certain believers or non-believers in public life to the detriment of others. That's quite clear that the state is not able to pick and choose between different religious or a-religious groups. But we have then the line from the Church of Atheism case, which basically says that a tax subsidy, uh, a, a charitable tax status, is a indirect tax subsidy to encourage the work of that group. So in denying the Church of Atheism or any group um, this coverage, it's necessarily favoring some religious groups over others or non-religious groups. And that's a bit of a problem. So it's, again, that presumption of benefit, um, and it's the idea that in providing these tax benefits, we're literally violating the state's duty of religious neutrality. Uh, there's another interesting question, which, I, I mean, I think I put it to everybody, but basically, like, consider if um, the, the, the criteria of other benefits notwithstanding, um, would a lot of places of worship pass a benefits test? They may, they may not. Um, but presumption of benefit is in their favor and they often don't have to even subject themselves to that test. So the other thing that's really interesting here as well um, that the court underlines in this case is that um, registration as a charitable uh, charitable tax status is a privilege not a right. And that's often something we have to remind people um, from time to time. And um, yeah, so th this, this point for me really um, hammers home the idea that the state can't break its neutrality by giving out char charitable tax status to some groups and not others. And it really calls into question the PEMSIL decision, um, particularly the inclusion of the advancement of religion, given that we don't have a definition of religion. Um, it's kind of complicated and difficult to say that we're going to help some groups and not others, but not really define what those groups are. One thing I do want to add, it's, um, and this is a really interesting live question, when comparing the Stagnay decision to, uh, to the Church of Atheism and kind of the arguments I'm making here, I should note that you know, Saginaw was a decision about prayer in municipal councils and symbolic in support of religion. But when it comes to the Church of Atheism, we actually have material support for, um, for groups. So presumably um, the emphasis and the need for the state to remain neutral would be even more reinforced. Because whereas under Saginaw, it's symbolically supporting a religious, one religion over others or religion over non-religion. Um, in the Church of Atheism, you basically have physically, materially supporting one group whether that's direct or indirect. Um, and that becomes a bit of a problem. So 
that's, um, I think, something that's very much a live issue, and it'd be very interesting to see future jurisprudence on this. And I'll probably leave it at that, and we can go to some questions. But it is interesting to look at these cases, because in the end, um, the church was not registered. Um, and so that was kind of, we, we first saw it as sort of a loss. But looking uh, at the case a bit closer, you can kind of see how it really does um, highlight the weaknesses in the current tax policies um, and the inclusion of advancement of, re- advancement of religion as a category in that um, in, in those regulations. Yeah, the case is fascinating. When I first uh, came across it and looked at it, it was frustrating. And looking at, like, the case itself is only 29 paragraphs in total. It's six pages double-spaced. Like, it is a short legal case. Uh, it was released two weeks after the hearing finished. Like, the judges, for example, in the Trinity Western University case that we were a part of arguing at the Supreme Court of Canada, I think took almost six months, maybe more, to write that decision. And it was hundreds of pages. It was long. You can see here's Saguenay for a visual, and here is um, Church of Atheism. This is, yeah, four or five pages. Saguenay, decent half, you know. Yeah, solid cases. So, And I did try to figure out what had happened here. Um, the guy who brought the Church of Atheism clay case self-represented. Uh, as far as I can tell, the Church of Atheism is the one guy. Uh, so it's someone who I think had the right idea, but really missed his shot and went after it in a very naive and overambitious kind of way. Like going to the Federal Court of Appeal is a difficult task and taking on the CRA who have no interest in changing this policy because it works well for them and they don't want to have to figure out a new way to approach charities. You know, they have their rules and there's a few exceptions to it, but it mostly works. And if this case had won, you'd have a lot of weird organizations coming forward. And in particular, you had a you know, quote-unquote church that was fairly new to the average person would probably say is obviously made up in the same way Church of Flying Spaghetti Monster is. And the courts don't like their time being wasted, so I got the sense there was a bit of a, like, go away. I get your meaning well, but If I want to jump in here, Ian, one of the big interesting aspects, I think the overall focus of the case was misguided in that it attacked, it it was basically saying we want to be recognized as a charity under under advancement of religion, Um, whereas what it should have been doing is the advancement of religion clause discriminates against us and shouldn't exist. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily put that forward in a court case, but I feel like it's kind of like we want to be part of your club versus your club is discriminatory. They're kind of two different conversations. I think I, I... I think that's kind of where I would sort of summarize it. Yeah, I think the ideal, you know, I have to assume what this person's motivations were, but I think his hope was to show that the category is discriminatory by showing how he can't be included in it. So he applied, he, you know, he's like, I'll even try to play by your rules. And when you don't let me, you know, that mm-hmm. that's when you have a case to bring forward. You can't, it's hard to bring forward a case when you don't have something. I mean, we could yeah. bring forward a, and there's been talk, and we've talked with other secular organizations about bringing forward this t- kind of test case, but it's very expensive. So if someone has a lot of money, let us know. 
um, where an atheist charity, an explicitly atheist or humanist charity, applies for charitable status as advancing atheism. Inevitably, that will be rejected, and then you sue for that. And you don't even have to say we're advancing religion. You say our charitable purpose is to make more atheists because well, that's a public good. Well, what's interesting here is like you see the the plaintiff basically saying, "Look," or the complainant rather saying that you know like we we meet the criteria for a religion, and even went so far as to say things like you know we have, um, you know, uh, we have the Ten Commandments of energy, right? And we you know our text is science, and I think that in that sense they were trying to play ball by making themselves fit into the, the general religious box whereas the case that you're proposing would be one where we reject that box because that box in and of itself excludes groups um, and, and then that was kind of part of the decision where it says yeah we recognize the box excludes groups but in attempting to fit into the box um the church of atheism kind of validated the box in a sense right and i think that might be there may, that may be some of the tension that I'm, I'm at least picking up in the case as well yeah um i'll just touch on one other thing i'll remind anyone that they can throw questions in the uh, comment box in the chat. I saw a couple questions that I've been replying to on the Facebook page as well from Tim. Thanks for throwing out your thoughts on uh, the expansion of humanism and the hope that everyone embraces it. Uh, I was drafting a reply that we do have polling data showing, you know, 70% of British Columbians do not see themselves as religious. And even if you look at how people are behaving uh, in this crisis, in this pandemic, people are putting the needs of the greater community and the greater good ahead of many of their own selfish interests not because of divine reward but because of the here and now and taking care of one another and I'd say nothing's more humanist than that and that's all very optimistic so I think we do have reason to think we're doing well um, the last thing I did want to add is I'll touch on it briefly Why, and it's why some of this matters rather than just the nuances of charity law which can be very uh, nerdy and wonky is that with the Center for Inquiry last year we also released a report called The Cost of Religion. It was the first of which will eventually be several parts and we actually tried to figure out what do these tax receipts to religious organizations cost. Uh, it's really hard to figure out you know what's the foregone income tax by not taxing them but they'd probably be a generic not-for-profit anyway if they weren't to charity but if you took away advancement of religion how much more money would the federal government have? Uh, the reason it's difficult is because charities don't say how much tax receipts they give out. They just... And people claim different amounts. So when you file your income taxes, you say, you know, I donated $30 or $3,000 to charity last year, and you get a portion of that back from your province and you get a portion of the back from the federal government and it's different from each province and it's also different depending how much you in total give in a year the more you give I think the more you get back so for the average person we don't know if they gave to all religious charities or if only the first few dollars that would be a smaller tax write-off were to religious charities or how it exactly work so we can take the total amount of receipts claimed by charities and the total donations and estimated that somewhere between 1.6 and 2.6 billion dollars went to subsidize religious charities in Canada. Uh, 50, 
104 to 155 million of that was here in BC from the British Columbia government. Uh, so it's a lot of money, and it's a lot of money that goes to many organizations that probably do a lot of good work, some organizations that are probably harmless, and then a few that are probably actively harmful and have views that I think run contrary to a public good. You know, churches that are, um, or religious groups that are homophobic or promote bigotry of other kinds are being subsidized by the federal government because of a perceived requirement for uh, freedom of religion, even though we have established that religion is, or charitable status is a privilege, not a right. And so that money is kind of what we're, you know, looking at here and what else could Canada do with $2 billion right now? I wanted to jump in here, Ian, if I can. Um, you and I were talking a bit about uh, the HALO project beforehand. One, one stat that I saw in preparing for this was that uh, 40% of charities in Canada are registered under the Advancement of Religion Clause, which is which is a lot, right? And we're talking about a nonprofit sector that's that's very large. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add, if I could, was that Ian makes a really good point um, that you know there are recipients of charitable tax funds that are excluding people, that are discriminating against people, whether they're of, of race or sexual orientation or, or for, for sex or gender. Um, and, and that's one of, the, one of the criteria that the CRA would not, uh, would, would deem not to be a public benefit. As I, as I said, um, they said, you know, you cannot restrict delivery of benefits to a certain group or class of persons without adequate justification. And what's interesting there is because under the pencil, uh, pencil test, advancement of religion is presumptive uh, it's presumed to be a benefit. It's not necessarily subjected to that test. And I think if you, you held up, as, as Ian was saying, if you held up some traditions um, to that test, they would fail that test because they exclusively discriminate against people on, on tons of different grounds. Um, but yeah, the, as far as like uh, measuring the benefits, um, I wanted to very briefly mention the HALO project, which is a, a study that um, is attempting to uh, gauge the economic impact of places of worship, primarily in the United States, but they've done one in Kingston. Um, and they were basically saying, oh, here's the benefits that this church provides, you know, so many so hours of people driving, here's the number of after-school programs and the benefits to the community for having green space around it, um, which is all fine and good, um, but they often didn't compare them to alternatives and uh, whether, you know, replacing a church with a park or with a cafe. And, um, but that is interesting that you see these groups attempting to quantify their benefits um, in order to basically say, ah, you know, we actually have, a, we provide, a, you know, a tangible benefit rather than a less tangible one. I think it's also a, a tacit recognition that these regulations should be changing or might be changing, or uh, maybe they're trying to get ahead of, ahead of the game. But it's an interesting uh, practice that you see happening. Well, there's a couple minutes left before 8 o'clock when I think we're going to wrap this up. Is anyone on the Zoom call or anyone watching on Facebook Live, if you have a question, uh, you can either unmute yourself and ask or throw it in the chat box should mention links to all of our work is on the BC Humanist website bchumanist.ca uh, there you can sign up for our latest research project that Teal has talked about it or in these past series of talks to study how many municipalities across Canada open with a prayer every day and we've found some like Winnipeg, for example, that still does, although they claim to have made it largely secular. And CBC described it as sometimes even atheist prayers, but that's not a thing. 
they if don't. If you've been tuning in regularly, you would know that we've written extensively on the fact that that's not a thing. <laughs> yeah. And they're not praying that there is no God. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a secular or a uh, non-religious invocation is still not a atheist prayer. <laughs> and I always wanted to do a second plug for that. Um, if you are at home and you have some time on your hands, it's, it's a very accessible project. And we've had a lot of success doing uh, citizen science, engaging our members and humanists across the province and country um, in our research with the prayer, House of Prayers project. Um, that's That was really successful. We transcribed over 870 prayers. Um, and for this one, we're basically looking at municipalities across the country. And we've already reached Ontario, um, but we are looking for French speakers in particular so we can cover Quebec. And I don't want to do it all myself. Um, so if you do speak French and you're willing to spend a few minutes um, helping look into this, it's going to really help um, ensure that court decisions like Saguenay are actually enforced. Because that's one of the other things that's worth mentioning. You know, we can talk as long as we want about the Church of Atheism case or Saguenay. But if you have a court decision and people don't follow it and it's not followed up, um, then you don't actually get outcomes that are reflected in the court decision. And that's what the BC Humanists have been doing with our municipal prayers and our House of Prayer study. It's saying, like, especially with the municipal prayer study, we're saying, look, the law says this. Now let's see if people are following it. Um, and we're finding that they're not. And municipalities across BC and the country are, are not. All right. Well, seeing no questions, we might wrap it up. We'll do another one of these probably in two or three weeks. Stay tuned to our website and our Facebook page for links to that. I'm eager to talk about independent schools and some of the work we've been doing on that. We have an interesting report coming out very soon, probably, on how well graduates of independent school, schools, independent schools, private schools actually do. The claim is usually that you go to private school because it will give you a better education, but can we test that? Can we see if that's true? Uh, we'll also be talking about property tax exemptions, especially at municipalities, how much those cost, whether there are ways municipalities can apply them better. And we've actually seen some examples of that. And so we'll, that should be an interesting talk as well. And on Wednesday at 1 p.m. here on Facebook and for members on Zoom, I'll be doing a town hall with one of the people running the Greater Good Committee for the Kelowna Atheist, Secular, Humanist, and Skeptics Group. Uh, talking about what they do and how they're making Kelowna a better place through non-religion. So thank you all for coming. Uh, have a great long weekend. Stay safe as you relax your bubble a little or as you expand your bubble and relax your social distancing. Keep being safe. You know, we're not through this yet. Thank you and good night.